0: Children that are headed to children's ministry, you can dismiss those kiddos right now. And uh, just as a reminder, we do make our sermon outlines available now uh, on online, and you can just go to our website, SoftGraceKC.org, and find them there under sermons. Or you can scan this with your phone if you'd like to follow along. Well, today we are beginning our series on the book of Proverbs, and we'll be going through this book for the next 31 weeks. And today I have the opportunity to present to you sort of an overview of what the book of Proverbs is really about. And I think the most important thing I could say about the book of Proverbs is actually found in a verse that is far from the book of Proverbs. So if you'll open your Bibles today to the book of Luke chapter 11, verse 31, and I'll explain what I mean, why this is the most fitting text for the introduction of the book of Proverbs. Luke eleven thirty one. this is Jesus speaking the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment. Queen of the south, uh, known as Sheba, came a very long way to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon being the primary author of the book of Proverbs. And she's a queen, presumably has plenty of counselors in her life, presumably has some intellectual capacities of her own but she humbled herself and actually traveled a great distance when traveling a great distance was quite difficult so that she could sit at the feet of Solomon and hear his wisdom. And Jesus is saying to the unbelieving generation that he's speaking to in this passage, he's saying, one day at the judgment, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, will rise up and say, I traveled a great distance to hear Solomon's wisdom you have someone far more uh, wise than Solomon you have someone greater than Solomon right in front of you and you won't listen to him so the best way to introduce the book of Proverbs in my opinion is to show you the one ultimately that Proverbs is pointing to that being Jesus Christ there's a phrase we use from time to time here when we share the quick version of the gospel and we say that Jesus lived a perfect life. And it's one of those phrases that encapsulates a ton of meaning. And it's also one of those things that's very easy to just let become an abstraction. We don't really know what we mean when we say, Jesus lived a perfect life. Well, actually the book of Proverbs gives us, I would say, a bit of an inventory A survey, a rather thorough inventory of all of the perfections of Jesus Christ. I think Proverbs actually sort of describes what a perfect life is. One of the things that we all kind of think of when we say that Jesus lived a perfect life is that he didn't do stuff he wasn't supposed to do. He didn't sin, his actions were free of sin. He did not commit what theologians refer to as sins of commission. Those are the things you do that you're not supposed to do. And the book of Proverbs is full of warnings against various sins of commission. For instance, there's there's all sorts of language in the Proverbs about, about uh, finding to, to these young, to the young man who's who's receiving the Proverbs, there's all sorts of warnings about falling in with the adulterous woman. Proverbs 7.25, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to shoal, going down to the chambers of death. So Proverbs, one of the things you'll see as we work week by week through the book of Proverbs, is that Proverbs is full of warnings about stuff you shouldn't do. Right? And it's not just about adultery, it's about debt and gluttony and gossip and so on and so forth. And when you look at all of those prohibitions and then you turn and look at Christ, you can say very clearly, Jesus didn't do any of that. Jesus lived a perfect life means partly he successfully walked through this life, through this world, without ever committing a sin of commission. And then there's like this deeper idea behind the adulterous woman in the Old Testament. Uh, when, when, when you see that sort of, uh, well, you could say it's a trope, when you see this sort of idea, this almost like a, a, an informational meme presented in the scriptures, there's two meanings. One, there's adulterous woman, you shouldn't. But there's the other meaning, and that is spiritual adultery. Like, like letting your heart go away from the Lord and towards someone else. And so whenever you read about, you know, why is there so much adultery in the Bible? Well, it's a subtext. It's, it's, there's a subtext to the whole thing, and that is that describes our hearts without Christ. They flee from our one true love, and they move into all of these really insane affections that are so much worse than what we have in Christ. And so all of those prohibitions you see in Proverbs kind of often have two levels. There's like the level of don't commit adultery, and then there's the level of, and don't leave the Lord for some strange new thing. Or uh, don't be a glutton, and and don't merely consume the word of God. Use it to serve others. Like there's always these spiritual subtexts beneath these commands. And so we can say on that account, Jesus lived a perfect life. But you know, another thing you'll see in the book of Proverbs is that there aren't only warnings about stuff you shouldn't do. There are also warnings about failing to do things you should do. That's what we would call sins of omission. When you don't do something that God wants you to do, you're committing a sin of omission. And Proverbs basically chose... As you listen to the whole, well, I say listen, I've been listening to the book over and over again. And as you listen, you know, especially, you know, 15 chapters at a time or something, you see there's basically in Proverbs two ways to go wrong. One is to do stuff you're not supposed to do, and the other is to not do stuff you're supposed to do. Right? And that's the category that we as American believers have just completely neglected. We we evaluate Our standing before God, our obedience, have we done anything we're not supposed to do? And we're not routinely asking the other side of the question, am I failing to do things that God has called me to do? Well, Proverbs is very careful in saying that both of these things are two sides of the same coin. There's two different ways to go wrong. And so there are all these warnings in Proverbs about neglect and passivity and laziness. And then of course there's a proverb that we looked at I guess a few months ago, Proverbs 18:9 that says it very clearly, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Well, on this account we can say that not only has Jesus avoided doing anything he shouldn't have done, but Jesus has also done everything he should have done. Jesus is guilty neither not guilty of Sins of commission or sins of omission. In fact, in John 17, verse 4, as he's praying to the Father shortly before the cross, he says, I have glorified you in the earth. I have accomplished the work you have given me to do. Jesus didn't do anything he shouldn't do. He did everything he was supposed to do. Jesus has lived the perfect life. That's one of the things we mean when we talk about Jesus living a perfect life. He has done the action thing, Right, he has done what he was supposed to do and he didn't do what he wasn't supposed to do. Well, now we have to acknowledge, especially after coming off of 1 Corinthians 13, we have to acknowledge that actions aren't enough. We also have to think about attitudes. Actions aren't enough, we also have to think about attitudes. Jesus gets 100% on this as well. There's a rather cliche, but ultimately true saying that says there are two things you are in control of in your life, your effort and your attitude. Whatever perceived wrong has been done to you, whatever strange occurrence or tragedy or calamity has befallen you, you have control over your effort and your attitude. And this is what God looks for. Not simply Is this person doing the stuff they're supposed to do and not doing the stuff they're not supposed to do? But is this person moving forward, not only with actions that are correct, but attitudes that are correct? We saw in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3 especially, you can give your body to be burned, you can give all your possessions away for the poor, but if you have not love, an attitude, you're nothing. There's a guy at my gym, And this man is a physical, kendall specimen. And sometimes he and I are in the sauna together, and I sit over in the sauna as one is supposed to, as a man is supposed to, with a kind of sweaty Buddha-like dignity. (laughs) But I've noticed a trend over the years of sauna-ing, and I see it with this guy. These really hard-charging fitness chads They come into the sauna, and they do push-ups or squats. You're supposed to sit, man, and talk. (laughs) But these guys, they just, these guys got to add more, 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 extra, extra, extra. And so I don't like people disturbing my peaceful sweat with push-ups and grunts and so on and so forth. Stop it, sit down, talk to me. But you know, this fitness chat guy, like, I want to kind of hate him because he's just all too perfect, but one of the problems is is that when he's in the sauna and he doesn't have a shirt on, and he's got this tattoo right on his side, and uh, the tattoo, I, I just happened to notice it. I mean, he's basically working out in front of me, three feet in front of me or so, uh, in a very small space, so there's plenty of time to read all of the billboards, and <laughs> one the largest billboard on his body is in nice text 1st Samuel 16 7 and I just happened to have been a major 1st Samuel nerd uh, in my 20s and so I did not need to look up 1st Samuel 16 7. 1st Samuel 16:7 says man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart and I was like darn it even his theology is perfect. <laughs> We've got like a Christian Chris Traeger situation going on here. By the way, ladies, he's single. I will help. We need to figure out a way to slow him down and get him to be a little more on the frumpy side. It would be good for all of us. The best way to do that is marriage. All right. God really does look at the heart. So what does it mean to be a perf- to live a perfect life? Well, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't just look at your actions. I mean, those are important, very important. But he also looks at your attitudes. So when we encounter the book of Proverbs, don't let all of the money talk and the work talk and the parenting talk and the mate selection talk fool you. Proverbs is very much concerned with the heart. I believe don't quote me on this. You would never quote me on anything. It's fine. I believe that there are more references to the heart than just about anything else in the book of Proverbs. I know there are about 80 references to the the heart, explicit mentioning the heart in the book of Proverbs. You have all of these verses, and some of them are the most famous proverbs. Some of them are the proverbs we know the best, for instance, Proverbs 3.5, which is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And there's Proverbs 4.23, which is keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. But honestly, the deepest uh, texts in Proverbs related to the heart don't mention the heart exclusively. They just say this over and over and over again, fear the Lord which is really an attitude. It might you might make an argument that it's the combination of attitude and action. But again, some of the most famous proverbs are kind of not about what you're doing explicitly. They're, do, they're they're about how you are responding. How you're responding to God first and foremost. People often ask me for a definition of the fear of the Lord and I don't think they like it, but I'm pretty confident that I've got it. It's it's maybe needs some unpacking, but when we went through our series on covenant theology and we said that God is two things, he's imminent and transcendent, the fear of the Lord is sort of our almost emotional or attitudinal response to the transcendence and eminence of God. And so over and over again in Proverbs, we're told, fear the Lord, fear the Lord, fear the Lord. And of course, I think the one that maybe a lot of us know is Proverbs 9:10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Or Proverbs 15.16, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. What does it mean to live a perfect life? you got to get the action thing figured out. You've got to do no commissions and no omissions. And then you've also got to have the right attitudes. And what is that attitude mostly? It's a reverence, respect, value, appreciation for the Lord. But Jesus, again, nailed it. He always did what he was supposed to do, feeling and thinking exactly as he should, as he did the thing he was supposed to do. True righteousness, the kind that pleases God, sort of looks to me like uh, the inside of a lock, where there are all of these tumblers of different sizes. And so I don't know how many times any of us have ever actually fully unlocked a moment with perfect righteousness like we might have done the right thing but our heart might have not been in the right place or we might have said it wrong or so on and so forth I think it's very rare and that's going to be relevant in a moment when we consider another kind of question related to Proverbs but Jesus did it he, he lived the perfect life he, he had the perfect actions he had the perfect attitudes and the thing is is that the book of Proverbs is full of rewards if you do this stuff. Proverbs three thirteen through 18. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. You, you listen as I'm reading this to the rewards. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor her ways are pleasant all of her paths are peace she is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her and those who hold her fast call her blessed jesus unlocked the lock he 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 knocked every single tumbler in the lock the way it had to be every single second of his entire lifetime and he gets all the rewards There's this debate that's kind of more of like not a theological debate. This is just something that Christians think about. I, I hear it quite a bit. Is are, are the Proverbs predictions or promises? Have you ever heard that before or thought that? Like it, it first came up as I was thinking about parenting as a young dad, and I was thinking about the proverb that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and he will not depart from it. And I was thinking, is that <laughs> – god is that a guarantee or is because because you obviously as you live in the church for long enough you see children who who fall away i had lunch with a friend of mine who's a little bit older than me and he has a number of sons and they're all walking with the lord except for one he's like hardcore not walking with the lord and we were just having lunch chatting over a variety of things i said how's your prodigal he said still prodigaling So are the Proverbs predictions or are they promises? And for the longest time, I really wasn't sure how to make of this, but I realized that the key actually happened to lie in something I mentioned earlier, which is the covenant promise, covenant theology, the nature of a covenant promise is God says, if you do X and Y, I will do, if you do X, I will do Y. That's a covenant promise. And that's what the Proverbs are. They're covenant promises. If you do this, if you unlock this lock, With the perfect amount of actions inactions attitudes you'll get this reward so i think there are promises i think the answer though that the problem is is that we don't have the keys to unlock any of the locks and so they aren't really promises for us as we just are so rarely going to get all of this right but they are promises for christ Literally nobody other than Christ has ever kept up their end of the deal when you talk about the covenant. And so he has all of the rewards that Proverbs presents because he did X, he gets Y. For instance, Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Well, we could turn to Philippians 2 and say that because Jesus trusted God, and did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but laid down his life all the way to the cross, God gave him a name that is above every name. So we have this promise in Proverbs. A good name is the best thing ever, and we see that promise fulfilled in Christ. He has the best name. Even something very earthy sounding like Proverbs eighteen twenty-two: he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord. Even that is more true of Christ than anyone else. For in his trusting death, Jesus laid down in an Adam-like sleep and woke up with a bride. Or Proverbs 13:22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Now, that, that proverb isn't saying. If you, if you want to be a good man, leave an inheritance. Now, that proverb is saying that good men accumulate blessings that, can, that are so numerous that they can be handed down to future generations. And Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus, in his suffering, brought many sons to glory. So, Proverbs really, more than anything else, Proverbs is a thorough inventory of Jesus's perfect righteousness. And it shows us that all of the promises in Proverbs really were promises, but that Jesus is the unique figure to cash in on those promises. Listen, the book of Proverbs has great aspirational value to you and I, and we should strain to live a more perfect life in action and an attitude. But the first right action is to praise Jesus. That's the first right action. So back to the text at the beginning, Luke eleven thirty-one. 31. The queen of the south will rise up, Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. The older I get, the more frustrated I get with words, especially words like greater and better and weightier. It frustrates me a little bit to see this phrase issued by Jesus someone greater than Solomon is here. Saying that Jesus is greater than Solomon is like me saying that the universe is larger than my living room. You know, so you, you, you think sometimes that words don't say half of what they need to about God, but then you realize words are all we have. And you look at Jesus in this moment, even in this moment, he's fulfilling a proverb, namely Proverbs 20, five two, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. Someone greater than Solomon. Yeah, a little bit greater, a little bit. We read, when we read Proverbs through a Christological lens, we can hardly refrain from weeping over some of the beauty we find. For instance, Proverbs 30, one, The man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One who has ascended to heaven and come down. Who? Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true, for he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. You know, I'm breaking a thousand exegetical rules right now, I'm reading into the text. Christ is not explicitly mentioned. The, the author of this particular proverb had no specific understanding of Christ. And, and the exegetical rules say you have, to, you have to read what the author intended and no more. And I say, which author? Because the beginning of faithful exegesis is to understand that the author is God. And when he wrote this, he surely had Christ in mind. So there's this real indictment in the text that Jesus is saying. He's saying that the pagans, like Queen of Sheba, traveled great distances to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and these folks have Jesus, who is greater than Solomon, right before them, and they will not listen to him. But it turns out that Proverbs, in addition to being really good of uh, outlining Christ's righteousness, it's also a pretty good outline of man's sinfulness. And this moment that Jesus is encountering where he has these people who have God right there and they can't be bothered to listen. There are Proverbs for that too. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish but will not even bring it back to his mouth. The next time you're debating whether or not to read your Bible, remember Proverbs 19.24. As you see your Bible and another Bible and another Bible all over your house, remember Proverbs 19.24. This has got me in the word on days I did not want to be in the word. This picture of an extreme fatso sluggard half asleep on a couch with his hand like in the Cheetos. And he's like, this is too far. Jesus is right here, he's saying. I'm right here. One day the judgment's going to happen, and and the Queen of Sheba is going to make an appearance, and she's going to testify against you because you just couldn't make the effort to even listen when it was right here, and it was much better than Solomon. And then there's all these proverbs about fools, and one of the main characteristics of the fool is the fool doesn't listen. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 28.26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Proverbs 13.13, whoever despises the word brings judgment on himself. See what happens when you Break the exegetical rules and superimpose Christ on the text because you know that God wants that. Well, what happens with this text? Where does what does the word, do you see the word getting capitalized all of a sudden? Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. The original author of Proverbs 13 did not intend to say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. The word was with God, the word was God, but that's what the Holy Spirit meant. And so you have two layers. You despise the word. You bring on destruction, especially the word, which is what Jesus was talking about in Luke 11. Someone greater than the word is here, the word. And there's a dividing line here. And it's really in in the book of Proverbs, it's simply presented as wisdom versus fool, right? Wise versus fool. But it turns out, in light of the gospel, true wisdom is trusting Christ. True foolishness is disregarding him. And there are two ways to disregard him. Outright rebellion or casual neglect. Remember how we said earlier in Proverbs that there's two ways to go wrong. So all of this is just pushing us toward the person whom God is pushing everything toward to reconcile all things into Christ, for whom and by whom and through whom all things are made. And this proverbs start looking well, there's dimension to them suddenly. And these dividing line texts are everywhere, and when you read them in light of Christ, something something crazy happens. Proverbs 11, 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. What did the writer of that Proverbs mean? He meant be a righteous person. God will take care of you. It's true. What do I see when I see that in a Christological lens? I see that the righteousness of Jesus is going to deliver me from death in the day of wrath. Think about Proverbs 14.9. Fools mock at the guilt offering, but the upright enjoy acceptance. Well, that means one thing to the original author in that particular moment, and it means something entirely different on this side of the cross, where we see that Jesus Christ not only lived the perfect life, and he did not live it for the rewards because he had everything already. He lived the perfect life to give the rewards to you and I for eternity. And he did that by making himself an offering for sin. He is the guilt offering. Proverbs 14.9, the writer of Proverbs 14.9 looked through a glass darkly. We see this almost face to face. And so that's the introduction of Proverbs. First and foremost... Proverbs is for the praise of Jesus Christ, as are all things. Let me pray.